Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. I have to record this on Thursday morning because I got a bunch of stuff scheduled, and maybe I'll talk about that later on. But I just wanted to let everybody know that if I missed your question, it's only because it came in after I recorded this, but maybe during the rendering or something like that. So certainly not intentional. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got this week. Over on Floatplane, a couple of questions from the importer. First, they have some original Japanese Game Boy and Game Boy Color games, and they were wondering if it's possible to flash the English version of these games on some new chips and replace the Japanese ROM chips in their carts with them. Uh, so Voltar did a video on that a while back for Famicom and SNES cartridges, and I know there were people working on other versions of that, you know, just inspired by his idea, not a clone or anything. But um, So I would kind of look into that, but I haven't really heard of any projects, or maybe I have and I'm just either confused them with the other two or I'm not remembering. So I would check Voltar's site uh, and then just do some Googling and see if anybody else offers it. But that would be pretty cool. The only issue is the amount of space in those carts. So the way the Voltar ones work is they, they go kind of on top of the other chips so that they're, they are reversible if you want. But I think the one that you would have to do is remove the ROM chip and put a new one on in its place, which is certainly a bit more complicated and more room for, for damage or error or anything like that. But I don't think you'd be able to fit a stacked board in there. So I would just kind of research that and see where you got. But I don't know personally of any of uh, any anything like that. Next, they weren't satisfied with N64 emulation, so they went and got an original console and an EverDrive X7. They got it connected using an official Nintendo S-Video cable directly on the S-Video input of their 20-inch consumer-grade CRT. Question remains, how much of a difference would you, would they see if they were to RGB mod the N64 and use HD retrovision cables instead on that same CRT? Um, very, very little. So here's the thing. Going from composite to S-Video is almost always a giant jump. Now, when you're talking about N64, uh, or really any console with early 3D graphics, you might prefer composite video. And I'll, I'll leave a post to the CRT... Um, uh, the, the Twitter account that does those comparisons, they recently did an amazing one that shows exactly what I mean. So I'll leave a link to that for you to reference. But overall, composite for early 3D graphics might actually be a great choice if you're looking to blend them together. Then you get more sharpness as you go up, but the colors were the bigger difference for me when I was doing my research into N64. And some people really might prefer the, you know, I don't want to say better necessarily, but the more defined colors, I guess you could say better. Um, now you have a consumer grade CR or CRT with component video inputs. So a lot of that also has to do with how good the CRT is, meaning like what's the quality of it today? How many hours, um, you know, how good does it look? So if you didn't have a component video input on your CRT, I would say don't bother. Just stick with S-Video. It's excellent. You don't have to worry about it. But since you do, I think my next question to you would be, what revision motherboard is that N64? 
Um, it's my personal opinion. Once again, you do whatever you feel is right. But at that point, if you open up your console and it's one of the ones that can be, if you're using HD retrovisions, you would only need to attach three wires and a Voltar or a Bordy board to it and you can get RGB. I would just do it because then maybe you could run all your consoles through like a G comp switch into that TV. So ease of use right there would be a win. You would get sharper colors. You could of course always plug in a composite cable if you prefer that for some games. So my personal opinion is if it has an easy mod available, I would do it. And if it has the advanced mod only, you're really going to have to decide if you want to spend that kind of money that kind of time and effort modding or pay somebody else to mod it. Um, and in most cases, I don't know if I would do that in your scenario. The number one thing, I once again, just opinion, if your whole setup, if you had seven consoles that are all with HD retrovision cables or some kind of component video cable through the GCOM switch, and this was your only one that wasn't in the auto setup, I would have that be a bigger factor than anything else because then you could have a fully automated setup and never touch the input button. So hopefully that put things into perspective. If you have any more specific questions about that, I'll gladly help. But, you know, at this point, there's no wrong answer for you. You've, you know, you have a great setup and it's really which right answer is best for you. And lastly, speaking of N64, they purchased the Retrobit 2.4 gig wireless Tribute 64 controllers. They work great, but do myself or anyone else in the community know why third-party controller packs don't work with the Game Boy transfer packs? Um, it could be pins, it could be voltage, it could be some kind of proprietary authentication chip. I honestly have no clue. Those were just random guesses out there based on other video game hardware knowledge I have. Uh, but that is a good question. And if anybody knows the real answer, not my bullshit guess, <laughs> please post in the comments below. Next up, Mike wanted to chime in from the question last week about replacement batteries for Wii U gamepads. I guess they had one that was a bulging battery as well and bought a replacement from iFixit that seems to work well, but they wanted some tips as to the proper method of testing in a situation like that. Um, I mean, so this is getting a little complicated and I'm going to oversimplify, so please don't you know, correct me if I'm wrong, definitely, but don't take this as, you know, the ultimate fi uh, you know, testing of batteries and stuff. But the first thing is, you know, does it physically fit properly? Is there any kind of connection issue, which you said it does fit fine. But the next for me would be, is it is the battery matched properly? So, for example, if the battery didn't last as long, I personally wouldn't care. Safety is number one for me when it comes to power. I would care more about things like, you know, is the power rated properly? So one thing that you could do is have the Wii U gamepad running something on it so that it's doing a normal load, and then you stick a multimeter up to it to test how many amps it's drawing, and then read the specs on the battery. So if it's a, I'm guessing here, I'm making these numbers up, but if it's a 12 volt, two amp battery, and you're watching on your multimeter that it's drawing 900 milliamps, one amp, then, you know, it's probably safe. But if it's a 12-volt, 2-amp battery and you're seeing 2 amps being drawn from it, then you might be putting too much load on it. And once again, I'm oversimplifying. I'm not a battery expert. I'm not a power expert, although I know way too much, which is what makes me scared of these things. Um, it's one of those things where I know enough to be to know that I should be scared about these, rightfully so. So that's kind of what I would do next. Um, and then I would also just try to do any kind of research as to where the battery came from. Is there known issues with that, you know, et cetera. So in a perfect world, places like iFixit would do this research for you. And then 
post their work, you know, just like in math class back in the day, show your work. Uh, and that way you wouldn't really have to wonder anymore. You could just see right there. And then, you know, if something happens to yours, it's either a fluke or maybe there was a change in manufacturing that I fix it didn't pick up on. But yeah, um, I guess fit and, you know, fit and function. Number one, number two, is there enough power coming from it to power the devices? Uh, and then after that, it starts to get a little bit more complicated. But if I'm wrong about this, if somebody knows about battery technology and I'm coming at it from the wrong angle, please comment. Um, and, and even if you're an expert and want to correct me on the little oversimplifications, I'm into that too. I just always want to throw that disclaimer in there because I don't want people to walk away from this going, okay, well, the only thing that you need to do is I just always try to be honest and transparent and I mean, in everything I do, I guess. So I, I don't want to lead people down the wrong road. Over on Patreon, Michael Caramante also wanted to chime in about the battery conversation and say that BatteriesPlus.com sells PSP batteries as well as batteries for other handheld consoles. And in their testing, they have a few of them, and the basic testing shows that they seem to work fine, but they're not sure if they're considered reputable or not. So first and foremost, thank you for the suggestion. Second of all, excellent choice of words. You didn't come in and say they're definitely perfect. Everybody buy them. You came in and said in your testing, they seem fine. That's excellent nerding. Way to, way to word that. Uh, and I appreciate the suggestion. So I will, um, I'll leave the link to that as well. And hopefully a battery expert could chime in with some measurements on a scope with multimeters and, and also educate us on other things to look for. Um, and if I don't hear anything back, as soon as I have like seven projects that are all like consuming every moment of my time, uh, as soon as that kind of dies down a little bit, maybe I could contact some people and get some, some insider info from the people that make these in order to, 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 to really figure out what it is that we need to look for. So I appreciate you chiming in and I'll leave a link to that as well. Matt Richtenberg said they're all tricked out in their retro RGB and retro tech t-shirt and hoodies. They always start a conversation and help with word of mouth. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy you like them. Uh, I am always so humbled and grateful whenever I show up at an expo and I see somebody wearing them. And I've been trying to get all of my friends' hoodies as well. Unfortunately, Spring.com, formerly Teespring, I don't know what they're calling themselves, good company, but they've been all out of their 2XL zip hoodies. So I had, or at least their, their black one. I had the navy blue one, which I ended up giving to Justin, aka Goodwill Hunter, when he gave me the CDI. I thought that was a really nice gesture and a cool thing for him to do. So I wanted to give him the, you know, the first hoodie off the line, if you will, but they haven't had any others in stock since. So I've been wearing all of my friend's hoodies, which I still try to, to rock out and rotate through them. Um, and, and some of the older ones that I just have kind of laying around and it's been kind of driving me nuts because my washer has this thing where it gets like fuzz all over my clothes. So even though these things are clean and straight out the wash, I end up uh, looking like I'm wearing a dirty hoodie. So I definitely need some more new ones. Um, I've been trying to rock all my friends. I know I got the, uh, retro tech one. That one's great as well. I love the PVM in the front of it. Uh, a lot of people ask about destinies with the, the logo on there. Uh, I think people really like the logo. Um, and of course, a bear with lasers coming out of its eyes. Who wouldn't love a laser bear? So everybody, I get a lot of questions about that too. Uh, and you know, I do rock my own t-shirts and I don't care if you're not supposed to be the person in the band wearing the own, your own t-shirt. I would have done that in my band if the band members I was with didn't forbid me for doing that. I don't really care. I'm proud of the stuff that I do and uh, I, I like the way these look. So thank you very much for, for the kind words. Uh, and thank you to everybody who buys them. I just, I, I think they're neat, but I'm still blown away when I hear other people want to get them too. So thank you very much. And I'll leave a link to 
directly to the store if anybody's interested. Uh, and if anybody has any suggestions and other stuff, I could always add that too. I added a coffee mug, and I think I want to do a beer mug this summer as well. It looks like Atonal Assassin got their setup tweaked and is working well, and we've been talking about it a lot the past few weeks, so I wanted to run through what the final setup was, as it might help other people with similar situations and setups. And I do want to make the point that while this setup seems to be the best for Atonal Assassin today, it might not be the best for everybody else, and this is one of those wonderful situations where there are many right ways to solve a problem, and what they did might even be the most cost-effective for their setup if you consider the cost of console mods, switchers, and all that other stuff. So let me run through it real quick. They have a bunch of uh, 8-bit style consoles with composite video out going into a basic manual push-button switch uh, Radio Shack brand, which should be fine. Push buttons are usually decent for this. And the only thing you'd normally run into is composite video interference, but you're running composite video, so that's not a thing you, that, that would make a huge deal. From there, the one output of that manual switch is going to a component video distribution amp. They're just using it for composite, probably by running the, uh, the composite video cable through the green plug. One of those outputs is going to audio. The other is going to a RetroTINK 2X Mini into a Cable Matters capture card, which is probably just a generic brand that works well with Linux. Um, when you're talking about the RetroTINK, you only need to deal with 480p, so almost anything should work fine. Uh, the RetroTINK 2X I'm talking about. And then the second video output is going to a RetroTINK 2X Pro. Then that's going to a Porta HDMI to VGA converter, which is going into a Dell monitor. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and here's where I think people might be going, why do you want two RetroTINKs? Why couldn't you have just used an HDMI splitter like we discussed? And that's because of scan lines. So you don't normally want scan lines on a stream. Most stream compression will just ruin it and it'll look terrible. And even in video captures, I just, I don't like the way scan lines come out. Even the really awesome new ones from Mr. and Mike, like they just don't look right after compressed. That's not an insult to the, to the scan lines, by the way. It's just the compression algorithms don't know how to handle it. And that's totally fine. So you want to run just a straight RetroTINK uh, signal through it. However, when you're working on one of those VGA CRT monitors, this one's a Dell Trinitron uh, P991, if you do add just basic horizontal scan lines, it looks like 240p on a PVM. So in their setup, two retro tanks was the best, and they split the signal on the analog side of things. So I think that's really cool. I think if you take all of these things into consideration, console mods, more expensive scalers, uh, more expensive capture cards, because you can get a 480p capture card for 20 bucks, uh, two retro tanks in this situation might actually be the most cost effective. And I think it's awesome that that worked out the way it is. So VGA CRT monitor for gaming, that probably looks just like a PVM, but a Tink Mini going to their capture card for a nice crispy clean 480p output for some good streaming. So very cool setup. Um, and thank you for sharing. I'm really glad to know how this all worked out because I feel like I was emotionally invested in your setup now too. So I appreciate the follow-up and hopefully other people listening would get a kick out of that as well. Yep, I wanted to follow up to a few things we discussed last week. First, regarding NES color palettes, their NES is not 
an RGB modded one, it's a French PAL one that outputted RGB from the factory. Except the problem is that's not real RGB. That is a composite to RGB converter, which was very common in France because it was a rule that everything had to output RGB. So instead of redesigning the NES or the Atari 7800 or a few other consoles like that, manufacturers just built in a special converter. And unlike the generic ones we see, and by generic I mean anything that's RGB, any RGB in to composite out, unlike those converters that can handle multiple signals, this one was only designed for the Famicom signals. So you could tweak that to have proper colors. There should be a way to tweak the external ones uh, at some point. I still have to get to that live stream testing that one, but so that's the issue there. And there's nothing you're going to ever do to change that color palette other than take that thing apart, install an sRGB board and run it through the multi out, which I did. Cousin Scott has that one now. Uh, Jose did the mod for me. It came out perfect. It looks like a completely stock NES, uh, but you use the built-in nice molded RGB out. Uh, you know, it's, so it's it's totally stock. It's a no-cut mod, but all the mods are done on the inside and you do get true RGB. So it was actually pretty cool. Um, so there's nothing you could do with that. The total setup, uh, I think, or the original setup that you have now, you would have to mod it to do anything, but it's still neat. It's also something that just my opinion, but you might want to keep as is just for a really weird and neat piece of history. And then, you know, maybe get a different one to mod or, or get a mister if you want super clean output. It's all on your needs and your budget and stuff like that. But um, I, I do think it's very cool to have the SRGB installed in that one. Next, they tested both the, uh, both capacitors in their 2600 PSU and they're both fine. The diodes too. At this point, there's only the coils left. Do I have any ideas on what could be wrong there? No, but in my opinion, this is where I personally would just go buy a triad. Now, if you want to do this for restoration purposes, you want to keep the original, I would try maybe the Atari Age forums and see if anybody's figured out ways to resurrect these somehow. But for me personally, if you've changed the caps and you've looked for physical damage, is there a cracked PCB? Is there a resistor melted or something after years of being next to a power supply? If you've done a visual, a close visual inspection and changed the caps and you're still having power supply problems, I would just move right on to something that's brand new and known good, tested by many people in retro gaming. Just my opinion though, so I would try maybe Atari Age and see if anybody else there figured out a way to fix it, but that's that's how I would take care of it at this point, it's just by getting a new one. A question from Michael or Mikael, depending on where you're from, please correct me. I really try hard to get these right, but I'm just the worst at it. Never intentional. The question is, they're wondering at what point do I think a console needs to be recapped? They want to keep their old stuff around as long as possible, but they're not sure how far back they should go. Would that be stuff like N64 and older? Should they go back or should they go as far forward as Dreamcast, PS2 and GameCube and work their way back? So different people have different opinions about this. Um, the the facts, the things that I think I think are are such universally agreed upon in the retro gaming world that you could call them facts are check your game gear, both Duo consoles, uh, so Turbo Duo, PC Engine Duo, um, Turbo Express, and your original Xbox. There's one notorious cap. If you just Google it, there are, you know there's a million places that show you which one. But those are the ones that you need to open right now, today, and take a look at. Get in there with a flashlight and a magnifying glass, and if you see any signs of the capacitors leaking, have them done 
immediately because if you let the capacitor juice leak out it could rot through the motherboard and you could destroy the thing permanently forever or it'll ruin traces and you have to have somebody re repair and rerun the traces on the motherboard which is time consuming and expensive so those are the ones that you should look at now here's where it starts to get to a bit of a gray area it's my strong opinion that if you're putting any mod in something that has an internal power supply playstation one dreamcast um I, I would take those and recap the power supplies. Not necessarily the rest of the consoles, but definitely the power supplies themselves. Maybe even original Xbox at this point, because it's going to fail at some point, And you don't want a fiddly power supply that's going to slowly start to die and maybe cause some damage. It's going to need to be repaired. It might be five years from now. It might be five weeks from now. So you might as well just do it and get that over with. And I think most people would agree with that as well. I think some people are of the mindset of if it still works, leave it alone. That's going to be up to you. But here's where here's where things for me personally start to get into a gray area and a lot of people disagree with me and I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I think the only right answer is to open up all of your consoles that you care about, look with a flashlight and a magnifying glass or a flashlight and take pictures with your cell phone and then zoom in and make sure there's no leaking capacitors. I think universally people would agree that there's nothing wrong with that and it's good practice, get you used to, to looking for these things. So that's something you should probably do on everything, just uh, everything that you want to preserve. But then for me, I would say, what are you doing to these consoles? So if you open up your Sega Genesis and you're going to leave it completely and totally stock and you get in there with a flashlight and you look around and everything seems fine, I would leave it alone. I would just say, okay, I, I had my peace of mind of visual inspection. I didn't find anything, so I'll do it again in a year. Take that opportunity to dust it out, you know, hit it with some compressed air or whatever else. And I would be okay with that. Now, on the flip side, if I was going to go do a complete triple bypass to an original Genesis and spend that time making sure the video was good and lifting the pins and running all the wires nice and neat so I don't get any audio interference... At that point, I would take a look at the rest of the through-hole capacitors and replace those too. And I would even do, once again, you know, make sure I do a good visual inspection so that I don't see the, any cracks in the board. There's, Like we talked about last week, there's no physical damage to any of the SMD components like that. But I, I would go ahead and do it. And on the flip side too, if you have something like a PlayStation 1 and you're hiring somebody to... Uh, to install an X station and a PS1 digital, and you're going to have them recap the uh, the power supply because you're going to want a solid power supply to support all of those extra things. I personally would say just recap the rest of the console. Now, Voltar completely disagrees with me in that one, and he thinks that a lot of those PlayStation ones don't need it. But from the perspective of a customer, if I'm already shipping or driving my console to a trusted modder and I'm already having them open it up and do all of these crazy complicated mods, I don't ever want to think about, oh, a year from now I might need to recap the console. That's not something I want to deal with. Even if the caps are totally fine today, they're going to need to be swapped. So I would ask the modder, could you also recap it as well? And it should be cheaper than if you just said recap the console because it's already going to be completely taken apart. Not much. It's not an hour to take apart a console. But it should be a service that you know you could tack on for a reasonable price. Not free because the things are very time consuming. 
But that's my opinion that a lot of people disagree with because I just wouldn't want to think about it. Uh, on the flip side, if I had a perfectly stocked PlayStation 1, I wouldn't send it out to get recapped unless I knew it needed something. But that's just kind of my opinion on that. And also, if I, I've had a couple of people do exactly what I just said, fully recapped PlayStation 1, added all the accessories, and then they started to have power supply issues a year later. At that point, I would say, okay, let me look into a replacement PSU. Uh, Will's console mods has that nice one. Uh, you got to get a good matching external one as well. But that's the type of thing you could do yourself. As long as it's unplugged from the wall and you have a screwdriver, you should totally be able to handle that. And you wouldn't need to pay a modder. So in those situations, like imagine if you didn't get the console recapped and then you didn't. So your console's turning off and now you don't know what it is. Is it the power supply? Is it the capacitors? Do I need to reflow a GPU ribbon? What do I do? Now, if that happens, you know that that stuff's been taken to look at. So you could just say, well, here's a new power supply. You know, let me try that and it'll probably just fix it. So I probably talked too long about this, but I wanted to make sure that I got everybody's perspective in because I just, I don't want people to be like, Bob says always recap your PlayStations because it's not the case. I just think in, there, in the entire situation and the money that you're going to spend on it should be taken into account for these things. So do you need to recap your Genesis and your PlayStation right now? Probably not. But if you're already paying or taking the, your own time to do a ton of work on it, I would just for the heck of it. So just my thoughts on that, um, you know, make your own opinions based on that, but definitely open those consoles I mentioned first, because there's probably a lot of damage already. James the Naked Snake said, when looking online, they almost exclusively see people saying not to bother reapplying new thermal pads to retro consoles unless you're seeing issues with temps. As someone capable enough to reapply thermal pads to newer graphics cards, they thought surely it must be beneficial to do that on retro consoles. Have I have, do I have any thoughts, opinions, or facts on the topic? I have opinions, and I have rules that I follow, but I don't know if any of these are, are solid facts. Um, and people are welcome to disagree on this, but I'll share the short version and then elaborate. If uh, I wouldn't touch anything stock unless you knew for a fact there was some kind of problem. And if you remove anything that has paste on it, I would clean and reapply paste. But if you remove anything with a pad, if there's no damage, I would just put the pad right back. So to elaborate a little bit, if you have a stock Genesis or Super Nintendo, I would not mess with it at all. I would leave it alone and completely under, you know, just assume that the heatsink solution for the voltage regulator is fine. However, the moment I do a mod and I replace or I remove that heatsink, I would absolutely clean the heck out of both the heatsink and the voltage regulator, apply some Arctic Silver or something and bolt it back together. Because the moment you take that heatsink off, you're severing a 30 plus year old connection and all of that thermal paste is going to crack and fall off. And it's really, it, it kind of just reset it back to probably worse than new because then there's residue left on there. So I would definitely take the time to clean the heck out of that, uh, put a little bit of new stuff on there, never too much, as you probably already know. And the only time I wouldn't do that is if, for example, let's say I do that and I mod my console and then a week goes by and I went, oh, I forgot to do this or I forgot to take a picture for my guide or something. If I unbolted that a week later and all the thermal paste was still gooey, I would still just put it right back the way it was, I wouldn't go through the trouble of cleaning it off again. I might like mush it around a little bit on the heat sink just to make sure I still get good connection. But if that's fresh thermal paste, that's like a week old, I, I wouldn't bother there only with the original older stuff. 
And on the flip side, though, if I'm looking at an N64 and I, I take the top off, I blow it out with compressed air really good uh, when the heat sink is still on, but the plastic top is off, then I pull that heat shield off and the thermal pads come with it. As long as tons of dust didn't get in there, as long as it wasn't dirt or funk or, you know, roaches like I've seen sometimes, as long as that stuff wasn't in there, I would put it right back on top when I was done and not worry about it at all. Because if thermal pads were used, it's probably one of those things where it's like, all right, you know, this is needed, but it's not crucial. Otherwise, they wouldn't use thermal pads. They would use a different kind of solution to bolt everything together. However, if the pads were ripped or something, yes, I would totally try to find a way to repair it. Now, I'm sure people disagree with me on that, and I'm always, always welcome to new information. And if you have any facts as to why I shouldn't be reusing those thermal pads, please let me know. But, you know, please, I want some real data for that, because in the temperature testing that I've done, testing mods and stuff like that, it didn't really make a difference. Um, the the times where that would start to be different would be later model consoles and only after the connection was severed. So for example, you have a stock Dreamcast, PS2, and original Xbox. You've fixed the capacitor on the Xbox and everything else is working fine. I would never even think about doing that. However, the moment you take things apart and you take the heatsink off of that CPU and GPU and sever that connection, that is when the processor started to get hot enough that you really require that heatsink just for basic operation. So that's the type of thing where I would really look into each console, what people suggest, but only after I had severed the connection or if you're having heat issues or something like that. But that is when I would jump in and do it. And some consoles, you're definitely going to want to do that. And others, you probably would be like the N64 where you don't have to. So as a general rule, I wouldn't worry about it at all unless you've broken the connection. And then once you have, I would research per console. If it's paste, definitely. If it's pads, that's going to come down to you and your opinion and or if anybody has solid facts that they've put out there. So hopefully I put that into decent perspective. And if I'm wrong about any of that, please let me know. But I'm pretty positive I'm right about the 7805s because I've done a lot of thermal testing with those. Who knows? I, I make mistakes all the time. That could be it. Um, but I'm always open to new information. If any remember seeing an old video of mine where I mentioned the quality of using RF can vary a lot depending on how noisy your environment is. This probably isn't as easy for me to test, but now that I'm out of the city, how much more of a difference does it make to use a good quality coax cable in place of the cable the consoles tend to come with? Also, if you're replacing an automatic RF switch with a direct cable, do you know how important it is to add a DC block? They know that consoles which use automatic, uh, automatic switches use a DC voltage to trigger them, but they don't know if that DC voltage can harm anything by directly connecting to the antenna input. So a couple of answers. First and foremost, um, I haven't done any more extensive testing, but I personally wouldn't really worry about it because RF by default has the ground shield on the outside and the signal on the middle. And by default, RF is going to be the noisiest signal. So even though in, in the place where there is no wireless interference, it can look as good as composite with a good comb filter. It's still mono audio and it's still RF. So I definitely wouldn't put too much stock into that. And I certainly wouldn't start modding my RF boxes for RG6 cables. Once again, anybody has any data to, to, um, to prove my, I'm wrong, please let me know. But that's certainly my opinion on the matter. I also wouldn't really replace 
those with direct cable connections. Uh, I don't know if the voltage is any, anything that would ever harm a component, but I do think that those RF switches, whether it's automatic or whether it's the old school ones where you physically have to throw the switch between which one you're using, uh, I think uh, I, I would just always use that to be safe. Now, what I have seen people do is put RF connections into like a composite video switcher. So they had like three consoles going RF through one of those like NES or Sega RF uh, boxes. So the little, you know, the little rectangle that plugs into your TV. I have seen that, but that's different because that's a mechanical switch where you're, you know, you're certainly, you're using a single wire, but it's exactly the equivalent of unplugging and replugging everything in. So the little bit of voltage wouldn't make a difference. Um, but if anybody does know the answer to that, I would be curious, you know, would, would bypassing that box and just going directly in harm anything? And it's certainly something I've done once or twice for testing, but I always use those boxes unless the console didn't specifically need it. Like, um, like a CDI that has them, you know, has the, the RF jack built right into the console itself. Good question though, but, uh, I'm kind of curious on the answer, but I think it's safe to just use the boxes that came with those consoles or decent aftermarket ones. Richard Webster needs to add voltage to his SCART cable for a PAL CRT. And for people who have no idea why you would want to do that, I'll start from the beginning and explain. Many PAL CRT televisions with SCART inputs could accept composite video or RGB through that SCART input. And manufacturers of cables would add voltage, one to three volts, usually down pin 16 of the SCART lead, as a way to tell CRTs, hey, this is an RGB signal, switch over to that instead. Some TVs, you could do that right through the menu. Others, you had to have it done through voltage. So if you're in a situation where you just have a console cable that's properly built from a reputable manufacturer through a G-SCART switch or directly connected, this is not an issue. But in Richard's scenario of going through an Extron crosspoint, the crosspoint is only going to output RGBS. And that is when you would need to find some way to get voltage over to that pin in order to say, hey, switch it over to RGB. Richard's question was, can they just use a three volt DC power cable? And I would say probably, but double and triple and quadruple check, see if other people have done it. Make sure, you know, the quality of power supply doesn't really matter in this case, but you're mixing grounds. There's a bunch of stuff, other stuff that could be involved in that. I would definitely just kind of look into that a little bit more and see what results other people have had. You shouldn't hurt your TV doing something like that, but it's something I would be cautious about just in case. Uh, and also, of course, as you probably already know, if you're going from an Extron crosspoint to a SCART device, you're going to need to add that 470 ohm resistor on the sync line in order to make sure you're not sending too much voltage down the sync line into your TV. That would be a damage. So... Has anybody else done this? Has anybody else added external voltage? Uh, and is one to three volts exactly what you should use? Because I've heard people in the past use things like a cell phone charger and five volts. Um, I've heard people using a different power line and using a resistor to drop the voltage. So it, it's something that I would I, I would like to know a little bit more about, but I just don't have any access to any PAL anything really. And the one PAL TV I do have 
accepts RGB automatically. You don't need to have any voltage. It just switches to RGB when you plug it in. So, and in fact, that SCART input might only be RGB SCART. So that's probably why I haven't had an issue. So it's not something I could test. So I'm going to defer to the community on this one. I think it's a, an excellent question. I think you'd be fine doing it that way. But as you could probably tell from all the, the questions I couldn't solidly answer this week, I don't like to just tell people, yes, this is the way without any kind of... um you know, data to back that up. So excellent question. Probably going to be a more common scenario as people switch over to different types of switches. But this is yet another reason why very often I suggest just getting a GSCART switch. I do remember Richard's situation at multiple switches connected to multiple things. So that was, you know, that scenario is totally fine. But that's one of the other reasons to just stick with things focused on retro gaming, because these scenarios are already covered for you. So, uh, Good question, I, and I do want to find a solid answer for you, especially because there's plenty of people using crosspoints and other type of RGBS switches. So um, hopefully somebody could chime in. I, I think you'd be fine doing that, but just double and triple check. Well, that's it for this week. Before I go, I just wanted to mention that I'm still working on the launch video for that open source project I've been teasing for a while. And this is why I hate teasing stuff, because I originally planned on launching that video like, two weeks ago or something like that. And then as I'm creating the video, I'm realizing, oh, if we do this, that'll be easier for people. Oh, we should test that to make sure we can't do it this way instead. And uh, it's probably going to be out next weekend. It might be out the Saturday, it might be out next Saturday, but um, it's one of those things where I want to get the launch video right. Because if you screw up a launch video for something, even a free open source project, people might watch the video and go, yeah, this isn't for me, and then just never pay attention to it again. And I, I want to avoid that because I feel like this is a project that it's very unique in that on launch day, people are going to go, that's very cool. I think I might want that. But a year from now, I feel like everybody's going to be like, wow, I, not everybody, but most people with a multi-console retro gaming setup and especially retro PC setup is going to be like, yeah, I, I need that. So I want to get the launch video right. And uh, I just, I got my hands in so many different projects. I just don't even know how to keep up. So I'm going to try my best uh, to get that out there. That's why I wanted to shoot these Q and A's early on Thursday. So as soon as I'm done, I could grab a bite to eat and then just start working on that for the rest of the day. And I might even run into more scenarios in which I find reasons to delay it because I, you know, here's one more thing I want to add or another thing I want to demo or whatever else, but just a kind of a glimpse into that. Um, you know, I very often say things like, you know, behind the scenes research and development. And I often say things like, Oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to get people's hopes up. And this is an exact example of both of those things. I try to not have any teasers for anybody's product projects I'm working on other people's for just because delays always tend to happen. Um, and this is what I mean by a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. I'm not just doing the launch video. I'm also helping test it. Um, you know, the person I'm working with is way smarter than me, but you know, I still help and put the hours in to get all the testing done and to lay it out so that other people could accept the projects who aren't super nerds. You could just be like, okay, I get it now. You know, now I could do it myself or if I can't, I know where to go to get the help, etc. So just wanted to kind of update people on, you know, what the teaser thing is and, you know, it's a software project, so that's, I'll start with that. But 
yeah, I just kind of wanted to give some inside info. And I really wish there was more things that I could say on a regular basis, but I don't ever want to give away people's projects before it's ready for public launch. And like I just said, even in something like this, that's going to be free and open source. I don't want to spill info out on it without getting the whole story out because I don't want people to misunderstand what it is. So it's kind of just a glimpse in the behind the scenes stuff. Hopefully it wasn't too rambly, but as always, thanks to everybody who participates in these. Uh, if you have any question, please ask it wherever it is that you support on the latest Q&A post, because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And as you saw today, I love just scrolling through in real time and, and answering them like this. So any question at all that you have, wherever it is you support, ask in the latest Q&A post. And if for whatever reason I miss it, it's I, almost always because it came in after I had started rendering and I hadn't posted it yet. So just DM me if it's important or just ask in next week's. But anyway, thank you all so much for supporting in any way possible. And I will see you next week.